dark and dusty drapes Let in some light Tell the billboy come and get my trunk Cause I'm leaving here tonight Hey everybody, welcome back to a new episode of Meryl Streep and the Movies. Uh, how are you this afternoon, Meryl McNally? I'm good. How are you, Zach? I'm good. You were saying you're tired. Let's clue people in in case it gets weird. Listen, like you'll know from the last recording that I was not entirely with it and my brain just seems to have gone downhill from there. I am totally loopy. So, you know, I haven't had anything to drink. I'm just a little sleep deprived. I actually feel like I haven't yet edited that episode, but I do feel like now, I, I don't believe in like apologizing for, for your art, you know, but that's probably not either of our best work. We just kept saying how bleak it was the whole time. I, oh, I, I just couldn't find another word. I'm just like bleak, bleak, bleak. It was, it's a hard one to talk about. I feel like people who've, who've seen that movie understand that, but I'm going to have no shortage of things to say because I love the movie we're here to talk about today, which is Cry in the Dark. People will be very excited to know that I have more to say than the word bleak. In fact, yes. bleak does not enter enter the picture. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. We should, we should just like put a you know put a moratorium on that word. No more bleak. Although I actually do feel like you could describe this movie in a certain like the circumstances of it are, but certainly not the movie itself. Right. So sad. Tragic. So yes. tragic. Oof. But before we even get into that, what have you been watching? Have you been watching anything since last we spoke? You know what? I um, I dug my old case of DVDs out. Yeah, you did. I did. And I haven't done that in a while. I know that you're a big fan of DVDs. I am too. I have just gone the lazy route and do full streaming. But there are some movies that you cannot find on streaming. And because I have watched some sort of very interesting things in my time, I have a lot of favorites that aren't on DVD. So I dug them out and I put in French Kiss, which is one of my all-time favorites with Kevin Kline and Meg Ryan. And it was just as enjoyable as I remembered. Yeah. No, I love love her movies. Well, I, I, you know, him too, but... I, I love Meg Ryan's movies. I just watched something that she was in not long ago, too. Um, it was one of the later ones in her career that I had never seen. Oh, it was called In the Land of Women. Oh, yeah. Her and Kristen Stewart and I forget who else. I haven't seen it. Is it good? It was It was better than I thought it would be, actually. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. I don't think it's the greatest film in, in either of their, you know, repertoires but i think it's better than i feel like that was in a period in which she was just like i don't know she was being really unfairly i don't know what the problem was yeah you know was it the russell crowe thing yeah she did that movie with russell crowe and they had a relationship and her the public opinion of her just sort of went downhill and then she had some work on her face and I don't know. The whole thing just made me so sad because I adore her and I miss her. I wish she was in more. Yeah. She had a pretty good um, interview on YouTube that I saw not long ago, too. That was uh, I think it was her and Oprah. And it was obviously late. It was like, 
you know, it was it was several years removed from the Russell Crowe thing because she spoke pretty openly about that. And she spoke more openly about the Dennis Quaid divorce, I guess, than I had ever heard her do. But she really said, you know, that was a bad marriage. She said, yeah, I yeah. she said I should have left it five years before I did. But, you know, she said we were we had broken up long before the Russell Crowe thing. You know, she really was. I don't know. I felt like she was really open and really well spoken and articulate. Well, I need to look that up. I'd like to hear her speak about that. I, I I remember feeling terrible for her at the time. Like the response to her just felt so unjust, and she was carrying the load of things that weren't. Well, first of all, we had no idea if they were true or not, and then also, like she didn't. Obviously, she wasn't entirely to blame. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. No, it was so mean spirited. Yeah. No, that's a good point because Dennis Quaid's career took zero hits. Yeah. In fact, I would argue he's doing better now than he ever has. Right. Or right after that, anyway. Yeah, yeah, he had some big ones after that, so. The coolest took a hit either. Did it? Or did it? Yeah, I don't don't know. But um, I think she's doing a TV show, or she was scheduled to do something for FX or something. Meg Ryan, that is. Nice. Which, I'm on board for that. Like a... Really? Something that will, you know, give some character development. I think she, she, the other thing that I always thought of that period was she got so, Julie Roberts was like this too, where they were kind of like pigeonholed in this romantic comedy thing. And they both had these films that showed pretty good range. For her, it was a movie called uh, When a Man Loves a Woman, where she played an alcoholic. Devastating. So good. She's so good in that. And then she made, there were several others too, but I mean, that was like right in the midst of, um, you know, all the romantic comedies. That was very early 90s. And, um, you know, Julie Roberts had a few movies like that, too, where it was really, like, showing, you know, I'm more capable <laughs> than, yeah. you know, some of this fluff that I'm doing. Not that we don't love the fluff, because we do love the fluff, too, but, you know. Yeah, and they're, oh, she's just so good. <laughs> yeah. She she was my, she was absolutely my style icon, for hair in particular. And then in French Kiss, I, I would still to this day wear every piece of clothing she wears in that movie. I love it so much. Hmm. Nice. <laughs> uh, yeah. So anything else besides French Kiss that you've been watching? No. No, that's really it. I'm still I'm still squeezing in some Vampire Diaries and ER every once in a while. I'm going to see how long I can keep saying that every episode we record. Yes. Um, but I will say for, for listeners, for the very few listeners that probably cross over between Meryl Streep and the Vampire Diaries, one of the main cast members left the show in season, there's eight seasons. I think I'm in the beginning of season six, maybe season seven. Anyway, it really like kind of gave it a boost. It needed, uh, it needed a shot of energy. It worked. So I'm really enjoying the tail end seasons of the show. Well, good. Yeah. yeah. I have been continuing with the newsroom. And the only reason I keep bringing that up is I forgot actually one of Meryl's daughters is in that show in season two. Grace is in that show. Did you ever watch the newsroom all the way through? I didn't. Yeah. When I came out, I didn't have HBO and I have never gone back to watch it because I kind of, Aaron Sorkin, I fell out of favor with me. So really, because of, uh, I just think he's a mansplainer. 
Yeah, I need to watch it, though. I know I'd enjoy it. Well, it is, I mean, it's. I think it's a show where the performances are, like, all the way around incredible. I do think, you know, the Aaron Sorkin fast talk quippy thing in this show, it's, there are a few instances in which it's like, okay, nobody talks like that. You know what I mean? It's, there are a few scenes where it's just too Aaron Sorkin-y, but... If you can kind of remove, it's like beautiful dialogue. It's just not really how people speak, you know. Right. And so it's it. There's a little bit of that going on, um, but it's still I I love it. I can understand. I feel like it's hard sometimes to watch some of that stuff because we're kind of inundated with like the current events that are happening, and it's like, do I even want to go back and and like remember all this other horrible stuff that happened while we're in the midst of this other thing? But yeah. you know still still really well done and her daughter it just looks so much like her and is very good in the show grace is really good in the show she kind of has a somewhat thankless role she kind of plays um you know that typical i don't even know if it's worth explaining but there's kind of a sam and diane you know like will they won't they thing going on between two of the lead characters and uh, she is kind of the the woman that he's dating um, while waiting out the uh, Allison Pills character. And um, so anyway, it's kind of a thankless role in that way, but she's very good in it. The other thing um, that I started watching and I had I had watched a couple episodes when it first came on and then I don't know why I gave up on it, but um, I, I restarted it with Santa Clarita Diet with Drew Barrymore. So funny. I love it. <laughs> I love it so much, and it really kind of hits its stride in that second season. It's pretty good. I enjoy it. It's so good. It's so, so bingeable. Oh, yeah, definitely. And the episodes are so short and funny. You fly through them, and Drew Barrymore and Timothy Olyphant have so much chemistry. Yeah. They're just great together. They're so funny. Quirky. Yeah. Yeah, I really yeah, it's it's a it's a strange premise for a show if you don't know what it's about, but really good. Yeah. Can we go back for a second and point out that you just made a Cheers reference, which is amazing. <laughs> my my dating like, myself. Did I eat? You mean from it took me a minute. I was like, wait, from Cheers? <laughs> So great. <laughs> well, here's, here's the reason why. Okay, so actually this relates to something we were talking about. I don't think last episode, but the time before when we were talking about like, well, you and ER, when you started talking about ER and how it's like 15 seasons to get through. And I was saying that I, you know, was maybe thinking about doing the law and order. See, that's what I didn't want to happen. <laughs> you hear that noise? Barely. Um, when you when I was talking about maybe doing the Law and Order thing, but one that I did and I finished it up a couple months ago was Cheers. Actually, I went through the entire thing of Cheers, which was it took forever. I bet how many seasons was it on? It was on for eleven, but it's one of those shows where the a bunch of seasons they did like 25, 26, 27, 28 episodes. They just did so many because it was such a big hit. But they just kept pumping them out. I mean, like, really, there were so many episodes of that show. It felt like I watched it for years. And that's not a knock on it. You know what I mean? Like, it's a good yeah. show. It's just, it, there's so much of it. I don't know how they did that in 11 years. They pumped out, it was like 300-some episodes, it, it felt like. Wow. I feel like that's unheard of nowadays. Yeah, you would never do that much. Yeah. I've been watching Chicago Fire, and I haven't watched... I mean, I haven't watched broadcast television in a long time, and I forget how many 
how many freaking episodes they churn out. It is so many. And I think, do these people have lives? Yeah. Cable, it's where it's at. Cable, yeah. 10, 10 to 13 episodes usually, you know, and you're out. But, yeah. So that's what I've been... That's what I've been watching. Santa Clarita Diet, which I'm going to give a big thumbs up to. I'm really, really liking it. It's a lot of fun. It's dark. It's very black comedy, but really fun. Yeah. Awesome. So we're here today to talk about uh, what I think is one of my favorite movies in Merrill's canon, the 1988 drama A Cry in the Dark. If you're listening to the show in Australia, you might know this by its title there, which is Evil Angels. That was the original title. And then pretty much everywhere outside of Australia, it's called A Cry in the Dark. Can I ask a, what might be a silly question? I have not read the book that this film is based on. And the book is of the same title, Evil Angels. Can, can you tell me what Evil Angels is supposedly referring to? Because yeah. it doesn't come to me instantaneously. I, it doesn't for me either. I assume it has to be the dogs that they're talking about, the dingoes. Oh, why angels, though? I don't know. It is confusing. Yeah, there does seem to be, like, in the film, and we'll give you a plot synopsis, in the film there does seem to be this, like, contingent of people who are animal lovers and, like, really, really put those dingoes on, on an animal pedestal. But it's it's very it's very slight, like it's sort of passing. Right. Yeah. So, Evil Angels sort of makes it and it almost gives me the feeling of they're talking about the baby. Right. But but then like, the word Eric? evil makes no sense. <laughs> yeah. Be interested. Um, yeah. I think the name change for other markets was a good idea. Yeah, I think so too. Um, yeah. Do you want to do a plot synopsis for this one? Um, sure. This film is based on the true story of Michael and Lindy Chamberlain, who went camping on vacation at a, a landmark in Australia, and she had her fairly newborn baby. What, how old was she? Six weeks? Um, I think she was a couple months. I think she was born in April and she was killed in August. I don't remember if they changed okay. that for the movie, but yeah. she was a couple months old. Yeah, and, and um, her baby was asleep in a basket in a tent, and a dingo came in and stole the baby. And they were una- unable to find the baby that night or ever, and her, the remnants of her clothes were found later. But uh, Michael and Lindy Chamberlain were ultimately put on trial in the court of public opinion, which turned into actual murder charges and a trial uh, where she was found, she was, com- spoiler alert, she was convicted of murdering her daughter and he was uh, convicted as uh, a conspiracy to murder. And they suspended his sentence so that he could continue raising their kids, but she was put in jail for life. She was ultimately pardoned um, and then some new evidence came about they found the little jacket her baby was wearing which helped controvert some of the evidence that was presented in court um but the film is really meant to be a commentary on that court of public opinion and how much damage it can do right which is funny because this film is i mean for people who don't know this story for again for primarily like u.s audiences which i would assume is a bigger you know, part of our demographic than anybody else. 
Um, we might not know this story if not for this movie, you know what I mean? But this was like Australia's O.J. Simpson thing, you know, before O.J., actually not that long before O.J., just a few years before O.J. This was like, it swept Australia by storm. It was such a big deal. And there was such kind of strong opinions on both sides, on all sides. And people felt very, very strongly. um, And... Uh, it kind of became national because of that, but um, I think it's it's such a huge story in Australia that I it's it's not that big a surprise that it didn't translate here at the time quite uh, in the same way because people were relatively unfamiliar with it. But um, so I assume you've seen this movie. I know we have that. Uh, this, as you pointed out last time, this is kind of the beginning of you and I bonding over Meryl Streep. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I saw it, oh gosh, I don't know, late, maybe late elementary school, middle school. I watched it, I don't know if it was on TV or if it was probably on TV. I don't think we rented it, but I watched the whole thing and I, it, I mean, it left a strong impression. I've maybe watched it one other time since, since then, as I got older and you and I bonded over it. I haven't watched it since then. It's been nice. years at least. How did it hold up? It was actually better because I'm older and I get it a little bit, right? Because I was a kid basically when I saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I'd left my teen years the last time I saw it. And I remember being fascinated by it, but I didn't I didn't comprehend the full weight of what they were going through. Right. Uh, so I I loved it even more this third time. How about you? What's your experience with it? I saw it. I don't remember actually the first time that I saw it. I don't remember how old I was sometime in the teenage years and I've watched it two or three times, but like you, I, it had probably been about a decade or so since I've seen it. I don't think it had been 20 years, but it had been a while. And, but at the same time, like there are scenes in this that are so memorable to me, mainly, mainly Meryl as Lindy, um, her court, like her deposition in the, in the court scene. I just remember that so strongly. Um, I, I love this movie. I really think this is one of her best performances. I think it's one of her most rewatchable movies. It is not a happy subject matter, obviously. And yet this film is not weighed down by like doom and gloom it is and it's it's hard too because again like it's almost as if the death of lindy or not the death of lindy uh the death of azaria is treated so kind of strangely by michael and lindy chamberlain and that's that's one of the things that like the movie almost kind of takes on that um same thing like they accept her death in this film so quickly because they are they're super religious and they're of the opinion that like God wouldn't do them, wouldn't do this to them unless they could a handle it, unless there was like a, a reason for it. You know what I mean? Like they felt so strongly that, I mean, I think that's one of the problems that people had with them was how quickly they just were like, yep, we accept this is the way this is, you know, he was, Michael was basically out there thanking, um, you know, the, the searchers that night and saying, we've accepted this. And people were like, well, maybe we should find a body first, you know, like really strange responses. And I don't want to dive in too much on like, you know, coming after them because I think people grieve in very, very different ways. And it's ridiculous to try to assume that, you know, 
anything about how somebody should or shouldn't act, uh, you know, when they're in, we're in the throes of shock and grief and all of that, but not, not, not behavior you would probably expect, you know? No. I I mean, I think that that very clearly was the, the source of all their, their problems. They're Seventh-day Adventists and they, which apparently was not very widespread in Australia. And so there was a lot of suspicion about the way the Chamberlains talked about it and how they acted. And it led to a lot of, it really did lead to a lot of rumors that did not serve them well. Right. And so I think part of that was the religious stuff. It was a, like you say, it was, it was what they called a, mon- a minority religion. So not, not a lot of people really knew um, enough about Seventh-day Adventists to like really uh, you know, feel comfortable. Yeah. Anyway, it's people, people didn't know really what to do with that, but then she also had this demeanor about her that they really try to play up on. I don't even know how to like talk about it in some ways because a lot of it was physical, right? People didn't like the way she looked basically, and certainly didn't like her kind of gruffness and abruptness and the way she was very matter of fact and didn't, she didn't do that polite thing, you know, where she where she kind of uh, softened responses to questions. She just kind of said how she was feeling about things. And so, honestly, people didn't really like her. Yeah, so much of this. It's very interesting to watch this movie now. And to have watched it, like, you know, closer to it, it came out. And the, the shifting opinion and sort of, and dialogue and understanding around m- misogyny and unconscious bias towards women. It, sh- it just sets this movie in an entirely different light that just didn't exist when the film was made or for the last two decades, I would say. It's just in this last decade that that has really come about. So I found it really interesting to watch it now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, she didn't soften her testimony at court. Um, she didn't cry enough for people. She didn't act sad enough. She didn't act feminine enough. She didn't cry enough. She didn't, she just looked fierce and it just rubbed people the wrong way. It's really shocking. Yeah. Not surprising. Yeah. And there was also, there were also a certain amount of things, I guess there's, there's one that comes to mind, but like they were put in situations as well where certain things were out of their control. Like the, the area where this happened is a big tourist spot. It's actually kind of interesting. If you look up Ayers Rock, there's a lot of really interesting um, information about this landmark in, in Australia. It's, it's, it's kind of notorious because different times of day, depending upon the sunlight, it looks very, very different um, in certain lights. Like sometimes it looks very red. Sometimes it looks lighter and softer so it's a big tourist spot and yet at the same time it's also a spot where people who are native to that area hold that space in really really uh such high regard and they they ask people who visit to take certain precautions they don't like when people uh climb Ayers Rock and yet of course people constantly do they don't like when people photograph Ayers Rock and yet of course people constantly do Mm -hmm. and so anyway this is it's not like completely out in, uh, you know, like wilderness or anything, but it, it's kind of out back, you know, area of Australia. And so 
newspapers and television crews that were covering this story as it happened basically didn't even want to send reporters out to the area. And so they had the Chamberlains take pictures and do some like, you know, some of that preliminary work themselves. And a lot of people, I think, felt like, well, that's a really strange thing to do, too. Yeah. Almost performative. Right. Yeah. Like, why would you be willing to do that? And I I mean, in the film, they do say they they say, you know, we want to raise awareness so that this doesn't happen to somebody else. Right. Which makes sense, but still was not received well. Right. And that's what they say to the Chamberlains to get them to do it. But that's not really the the you know that the general public doesn't think of it that way. They just see that they were willing to do this and it looks a certain way to the general public. I think. So I don't know. It, it, it is just a fascinating story. So like you said in the in the description, this this happened in 1980. This is actually um, a very true event. And um, I don't know the year that she went to jail, that Lindy went to jail. Um, Michael had his sentence. He was sentenced as well for accessory, but he his sentence was suspended. And so I don't think he ever actually went to jail, Michael. She she was sentenced initially to life uh, life in prison with hard labor and uh, was released in 1986 after that, kind of by coincidence, somebody found, as you mentioned, um, her the, the baby's jacket, which kind of confirmed basically Lindy's and Michael's stories that it had yeah. been exactly what they'd been saying all along. And um, so when this film came out, I mean, this film was being shot in 1987. This is right on the heels of that, where they were like literally in, uh, you know, their, uh, their not countersuit, I don't think is the right word, but certainly like the appeals process and all of that, you know, like they're right in the midst of all of this happening. So they had, she went to jail in 82 and um, they exhausted, they exhausted their appeals. Their, the appeals were, the, the conviction was confirmed. So I, I think they were out of options when she was pardoned on, on basically compassionate grounds. Um, and then that new evidence came to light, which allowed them to reappeal and get exonerated entirely. But, right, which yeah. didn't happen until 2012. That is crazy. That the Australian government and their, I think it was their Supreme Court. I'm not looking at any of this at the moment, well, but I think. Convictions, the convictions were squashed in 88. Okay. And I know they paid them, I think it was like 91 or 92. They got paid like a million plus in settlement money or she was maybe. And then in 2012, I think was when the coroner finally officially switched the cause of death to. That's right. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's what it says. A coroner switched to Azaria Chamberlain was killed by a dingo. Yeah, sorry, I had that uh, kind of wrong. Um, yeah, but I mean, like that timeline too, for this film to come out, in some ways, it's amazing that it didn't kind of catch a little bit more of that of the moment. And yet, sometimes when things are like right on top of it, it feels a little icky at the moment. I'm thinking of, again, like, some of that OJ stuff, there were like multiple TV movies at the time that never yeah. really got much traction. But then, you know, you fast forward 20 years and that Ryan Murphy uh, 
miniseries for FX was huge because by that point it was like, okay, well we can watch this again. Yeah, kind of a distance between the thing and the film. Yeah. I mean, um, you, you sent me that Meryl Streep interview, which is fascinating. We'll talk about that, but, um, she pointed out, and this is so true. They were, while they were making the film, that new evidence hadn't come up that she was still, and, and she hadn't been pardoned. The subject matter was really polarizing in Australia. I think a lot, a lot of people believed this couple to be guilty of murdering their baby. Right. So um, to be making a film that says the opposite um, in the midst of that, um, I imagine was pretty challenging. Right. And the film does take a pretty strong stand. You know, I mean, I feel like it's pretty right from the beginning. They show they show it from the Chamberlain's point of view that the Chamberlain's version of events is the factual chain of events. Yeah, it really is interesting. I can't remember. I watched several interviews. I sent you the link to one. Um, And it's one of the longer interviews. It's, you know, 18, 19 minutes, something like that. And um, it's really I'll put a link in the in our show notes here so that people can check it out if they want. I found this interview to be completely fascinating. Um, I just she spoke about things. I don't know. I guess it's because she doesn't do a whole lot of like serious interviews. Mm -hmm. It's always like kind of lighter fluff pieces it's like good morning america or david letterman or you know like the view or something where it's supposed to be light and fun and she doesn't do these kind of in-depth interviews all that often and um yeah she just had some interesting things to say was this one of the interviews where she talked about lindy yeah how she was anxious she was anxious about meeting her knew that she needed to and had to but and and she spoke to some about some of their conversations and just sort of what it was like to be in Lindy's shoes, which was really interesting. My favorite thing about all of the interviews that she did in this period was how quickly and effortlessly she slid right back into that accent. Accent. Ooh, I mean, in and just, out. Crazy. She just became Lindy. I mean, like, I know how ridiculous that sounds and how, like, you know, generic that sounds, but she just was able to, like, it was like she was flipping a switch and yep. she would just be back there. Um, and she would, you know, say, well, Lindy would say, say a sentence as Lindy and then go back to being Meryl. And it was just, uh, the way she pivoted was unbelievable. It really was. Yeah, no, that was striking about that interview. I, I don't know if she did that in others. The one you said yeah. was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say she was still kind of in that headspace. You could tell she was still like in, not in character, but you could tell she was still not done with Lindy. I think at that point. Yeah. Agreed. I also found it really interesting in that interview. And this is, this is like the sign of its times. It was fascinating to hear how the interviewer spoke to Meryl Streep about her appearance and being unattractive in the film with yeah. an, with the accurate haircut and clothing and how they talked about Lindy's weight. I, I mean, it is so of its time. It's a little, it, it's a little time capsule of, of how, of how we looked at and dealt with women. <laughs> Right. Well, and I think this is the same one. This ended on just the most like, oh, 
moment where he said, and again, we never see this interviewer, so I don't mean to disparage them. I'm going to, you know, they may have had the best of intentions and it just kind of came across strange. But the last thing that he says to Meryl is you should come to Toronto. And is this the same interview? I, you know what? I didn't watch like the last five minutes, so I don't okay. know. But I can find out. He says, he says to her, you should come to Toronto which must be where the interviewer is based. And she says, you know, something like, oh, yes, I would like that. And then he says, leave the kids and Don at home. Oh, <laughs> and- it had to have been the same guy because he, he I mean, he was it was icky before that. So. <laughs> yeah. and, and her response to it is, you know, she she just goes, oh, well, I need to bring Don to have some fun. And it's that like, you know, maybe there's a reason she just. Yeah. Maybe there's a reason she doesn't do a lot of interviews like this. I would assume there's a publicist in the room with her or somebody else in the room with her. But you know what I mean? Like, it could get real weird real quick. Yep. I feel... Have you watched those... Um, people have edited together all of those press press tour interviews of women actors leading up to, like, you know, just like last year of qu- ridiculous questions that press journalists have asked women mm-hmm. on these press junkets. It's, it's fascinating. It's really frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Um, outside of that, I, I do just think it was, um, I, I, this interview, the reason I thought it was interesting was because there were a few other things. First of all, she's talking about Avita. This is the same interview um, where she was talking about Avita. They were in the planning stages and she said, yeah, I think I'm going to do that next year. Oh. Um, would have been so good. It would have been. There was like joking. Um, and and then she was talking about, uh, she said, yeah, you know, Patty Lapone's going to be mad at me. Elaine Page is going to be mad at me. She lists all these people by name. Um, and but, but then somebody else, she, the interviewer must have had, a, must know Mary Beth Hurt. And so they were talking about some stories about Vassar. And, do you remember this part? And, and then he brings up Sigourney Weaver. And Meryl had a really funny reaction for a moment. I wasn't sure if she was kidding. And she goes, well, you shouldn't believe Sigourney's story. She goes, Mary Beth Hurt's stories are true, but Sigourney's are not. Oh and it's strange, like, oh, is she throwing shade? But I think it was, it was very playful. It was just kind of, she, she really read it as uh, very, I don't know. It was kind of just interesting to see her speak of, speak of these things that she doesn't really normally talk about, you know? Yeah, yeah no, that is the great thing about that interview. It's a, it's a rare gem. Cause yeah, you don't usually see stuff like that. It's much yeah. more surfy. It was great. Yeah. yeah. Um, how did you feel about Sam Neill in this movie? Uh, I just love him so much. <laughs> I love Sam Neill. I will watch anything with Sam Neill. He's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, the dynamic between the two of them is really fascinating. Meryl Streep and Sam Neill have a lot of chemistry and work really well together. And they don't, they seem to be very giving with each other as actors because nobody is trying to one up the other. This film, I think there was a lot of effort put into getting it as close to, to the truth, to accuracy to accuracy as possible, to accuracy. What is that, people? I'm so sorry. <laughs> to make it as accurate as possible, there's English. 
And and so there's just a subtleness to both of their performances. You really do feel like you're just a fly on the wall in their home. It's fascinating. It's so good. So good. Yeah. He's so yeah. he's so young, and he's not really in this movie. Um, I think he was maybe what forty, somewhere around there yeah. when the film was made. Yeah, they they are paired really well together. Um, it we should mention that this was a uh, the two of them had appeared previously, and Fred Skepsi, who is a director of this movie, in uh, the three of them had reteamed for this after doing Plenty together just a couple years previous. So. Um, they both had very, you know, great things to say. Basically, they each credited Meryl with being a lot of fun and being very funny on set and keeping it a, like a very upbeat set. Uh, you know, and it would have been very easy for it to not be <laughs> given the circumstances yeah. of the story they were telling. The other thing um, that's probably good to note um, is uh, we you kind of alluded to this already, but apparently they were really hounded hard on this film while they were making it, that there was a lot of paparazzi. There was a lot of kind of stalking of the two of them in particular, Meryl in particular, you know, she's, she said that previous to this, she had not really experienced at least in, in the same way that she was here, having photographers camped outside her, her house 24 hours a day with the lights aimed at the house. And, um, in one of the interviews, I don't know if it was that same one, she mentioned that, you know, one of her daughters, I would assume probably Mamie, given the age, yeah. um, was there and she would, you know, she would be naked in front of the photographers and just doing a dance because she saw cameras and that, that was like her immediate response. And they're all thinking, this is not what I want. Yeah, no. And, and how much that experience sort of gave her a glimpse into what, Lindy Chamberlain was experiencing. Right. There were some really interesting moments in the film, too. One, as a lawyer, I get very worked up about um, forensic experts get on the stand and they have so much influence over a jury because they're labeled an expert and they are are touting theories and science that is not science and it's not accurate. And people are going to jail for lifetimes because people are doing this so irresponsibly and it kills me. This movie really gets into that and they don't, they don't linger too long on that testimony. And it's definitely, you know, the movie's definitely not just about the trial, but Oh, it gets under my skin. It kills me. It really frustrates me. The other moment that really sort of stuck out to me was at the very beginning when they go to Ayers. Is it Ayers Rock? Ayers Rock, yeah. And she is standing at the bottom of the rock with some some other people who have come to visit. And somebody is, you know, everybody's climbing the rock. And it's very, very steep. And somebody's sort of bounding down the rock. And the people next to her are saying, oh, my gosh, who is that? Who, who is that idiot doing that? And she gets the binoculars. She's like, oh, my God, that's my husband. And then she has this switch of opinion where she says, oh, well, if he's doing it, it must be safe. So she right. takes kids up on the rock. And I thought that was very telling for the time period and also the dynamic in the marriage, because I think there was a lot of naivete there's obviously a lot of naivete about what's safe or not safe for kids. It was just a different time. The 80s were like, be free, go. Right. And 
you know, I don't think a parent now would ever go camping someplace like that and leave. First of all, take that young of a baby. But if they did, you know, put them in a backseat on the ground in an open tent because situations like this happened. So it's just it was just an interesting moment that I yeah. noticed. I was like, oof. Yeah, absolutely. It. um yeah, there are so many. How did you feel about one of my favorite things, I think, in this whole film is that throughout it, we're given these tiny little glimpses. It's almost like the When Harry Met Sally thing where, you know, like every once in a while you'll get this other couple's story, but it's like 30 seconds and then you're out. You, it's kind of like that where you get these like, I, I'm putting this in air quotes because I don't like this term all that much, but like normal people, just your average like Australian uh, people and getting their response to the Chamberlains. They show people yeah. getting into arguments about them and you get into, again, like people feeling very strongly one way or the other, but you just get these glimpses throughout this movie, which I really liked. Me too. Because we do that. It resonates. We do that. Like when anything happens in the media that we're not personally a part of, we weigh in. I mean, look at Twitter. It's evidence that we love to weigh in. Right. Yeah. And how strongly people felt. Yeah. Yeah. And and so sure that they know. So right. sure. I mean, even the this is kind of jumping to the very near end of the movie, but mm-hmm. right before the judge, I, I mean, I assume this doesn't happen in American politics. I don't know how often this happens in Australia or other countries. This struck me as really interesting before the judge handed off the case, he basically highlighted all the reasons that the jury should not convict Lindy. He he basically says to them, when you go back there, try and consider if this is realistic, if this is realistic, if she would have done this if she had murdered her baby. And I just, I found myself, like, he's basically telling the jury, do not find her guilty. She, yeah. the, the evidence doesn't back it up. And they do unanimously find her guilty. And again, I mean, it just goes to show that then they years later, it has to be undone. She she got some money out of it, but she certainly can't get that time back. And it's it really is a cautionary tale of, you know, don't don't be so quick to judge. Sometimes you have to really consider it doesn't matter how much you may dislike this person that doesn't make them guilty because you don't like them. People have different responses and people have different, you know, people didn't like her eyebrows and that was like enough of a reason to send her to jail for the rest of her life. It was crazy. It was so crazy. And it's still so timely. This movie really holds up because it's, it's, it has a, a universal message that's sort of larger than the time period and the event itself that's still applicable today. And, you know, I think we still probably even more so now, which is scary, have a tendency to dehumanize. You know, I think we even do that when we joke about, you know, there's a reason the line a dingo took my baby is part of the everyday vernacular. It's become a joke, but we forget that there was a real couple who lost a real baby and that was a real moment of pain for her. And it's interesting how the media can sort yeah. of warp that and twist that to where we don't attach the humanity to it anymore. It's a, it's a, right. a line that's easily mocked. Right. 
Right. And a line that people get wrong. Yeah. A dingo ate my baby. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's not what she says. She says a dingo took my baby, not ate my baby. Um, that's yeah. another one of those like often misquoted lines. I will tell you that I remember on a particularly drunken night at Lawrence being outside. I want to say it was Greer and you and I reenacting the dingo took my baby scene. Right. <laughs> yeah. But at the time, I mean, Seinfeld did it on that show. You know what I mean? Like that. Exactly. It's yeah. Sorry. Sorry, Lindy and Michael. It's, I know, right. It's but, oh, really, it was a bonding moment for you and I, because we were like, we love Meryl Streep. <laughs> right. Well, and in, in retrospect, it's very similar to, again, that OJ thing that we were just talking about. What that, what that miniseries, that Ryan Murphy thing did was show us how much we all need to apologize to Marsha Cross, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Monica Lewinsky and all of these other people who were like really, truly innocent victims and didn't really do anything to deserve. Interesting that they're all women, right? I, I can't think of a male example here, but um, people who were really unfairly demonized yeah. and turned into something that they they really shouldn't have been. But, um, oh it centers around looks, which is really sad and unfortunate. Right, yeah, all, all three of them. Yeah. All three of those examples really it was a lot about their it was a lot about their physical appearance. Um, yeah, anything else? I'm, I'm going to ask you your favorite scene, but anything else you wanted to mention about this movie? No, I think that's it. I highly recommend it. I think every anyone who's a Meryl fan should watch it if you haven't seen it. I I absolutely think it's one of her very best performances. I totally agree with you. Yeah. It's really, really good. And it's a really good movie, too. It's one of those that hits both of the lists, you know. You yeah. will not you will not feel like this is bogging you down in the same way that certain other movies <laughs> yeah. have have become, you know, a little bit long to get through. Um, favorite favorite scenes in this movie? Favorite scenes. You know what? I love the scene where she's convicted and um, she and Sam Neill have a moment before she's taken to prison. And she's so in a really terrible situation. She's, she's the calm one. I think she's a little bit in shock. But, but um, he's, he says something to the effect of, I, I, don't, I don't think I can do this without you. And she says, you have to. Yeah. And she leaves him weeping. That's that's a particular scene that stands out. Um, basically, all of her testimony is pretty powerful. The mm. layers, <laughs> the layers of the performance are pretty astounding. Yeah. Do you have a favorite scene? Um, yeah, uh, all of, all of that. I was going to say that you know, mainly the one that I mentioned earlier. I could I could practically recite it at this point. Is at during some of her testimony. Um, there's a, she's asked a question that's kind of a difficult, it's kind of the first time that she kind of cracks and shows some emotion on the stand, uh, where she says, you know, we're talking about my baby. And, um, the judge asks her, uh, do you want to take a, take a minute? Should we, should we recess? And she says, no, this has been going on long enough. I'd like to get it over with. 
Um, that scene, I, j- just that back and forth in her, again, her deposition. I think she's really, really great in that scene. I do like the scene you were talking about. The couple things that I, I thought about that scene, one was just funny in this midst of like this awful thing that's just happened. And so they're kind of being hurried down these courtroom steps and she's in front of everybody. And without turning around, she tells the police officers, he's going to fall. You need to catch him to Oh, uh-huh. She just knows that he's going to, you know, like he's not with it enough. But I honestly don't think she even looks at him. You know, she she just knows he's about to do it. It's it's, yep. it's kind of funny in the scheme of things. But yeah. it, it was the one time, you know, not specific to her. But you did wonder about um, Michael, not Sam Neill, who does such a great job in this movie, but the character he plays. Because I don't remember if it was exactly that scene. But there's one scene where it might have been there, though, where he, you know, his wife is pretty much assuredly going to jail for the rest of her life. And he turns to the lawyers and he says, you don't think I'm guilty, do you? And it's like, (laughs) man, that's not the thing right now. (laughs) Yeah, it's there are there are quite a few moments like that throughout the movie where you're like, this is such a man's world. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My other favorite uh, moment from this movie, and it ties into what we were talking about because it's almost Aaron Sorkin-y dialogue, actually, is there's a somewhat somewhat middle of the movie scene where um, the, she's talking to the lawyers and she's kind of dismantling the case and saying, you know, basically throwing the timeline out and saying... I couldn't have done this. When was I supposed to do this? Well, I couldn't have done that with this. And it's it's very fast talk. It's very, like, really crisp dialogue. Yeah. Um, and she just really dismantles the the basically the state's version of events and says yep. it doesn't add up. Like, it's impossible for this to have happened when, the way that they're saying. And it's sort of one of those scenes where you're like, can you just get her to do exactly that on the stand? Because if she does, they're not going to convict her. I know. Uh, and then you take that and then you watch Michael Chamberlain's testimony. Sam, Sam Neill is so good. I mean, it's so bad. His testimony, I think, is probably the worst I've ever seen. Scripted or not scripted. <laughs> um, I think he did some real damage to her. Yeah, he just kind of panics up there. He doesn't know what to do. Yeah, he comes off as dishonest because he can't he can't answer a question, and he changes his answers and he falls over his words, and it very much makes him look like he's covering something up. Right. And feels so good. Yeah, yeah. This is a great movie. Um, yeah. it's really great. Um, this just some of the other things that we normally talk about. This ranks a 6.9 out of 10 on IMDb, which puts it in the same uh, ranking as, ooh, this one's going to hurt a little bit, Suffragette, Devil Wears Prada, and House of the Spirits, somehow. Oh, why does House of the Spirits have such a high ranking? (laughs) Some of the interesting ones that this is um, ranked higher than, I would say, um, are like Florence Foster Jenkins, it's rated higher than Music of the Heart, Mary Poppins Returns even, uh, Mamma Mia 2, Postcards from the Edge, which we both have a soft spot for, Death Becomes Her, um, It's Complicated, The Iron Lady, Mamma Mia, River Wild, a lot of movies. This is relative to her, um, you know, other work, 
this is relatively high on, you know, in terms of rankings um, on IMDb anyway. I haven't looked on Rotten Tomatoes to see um, how it fares there, but it didn't do very well in theaters. It The budget for this was $15 million and it ended up making about uh, $7 million. So it did not make money. Um, there is some awards stuff. It was nominated for one Academy Award for, uh, for Meryl for Best Actress, which she lost to Jodie Foster for The Accused. That was Jodie Foster's first Oscar. She won one a couple years later for Silence of the Lambs. Uh, the other folks nominated that year were her old Vassar classmate Sigourney Weaver for Gorillas in the Mist. Uh, Sigourney Weaver that particular year was up in Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress, which doesn't happen that often. But she was up for Gorillas in the Mist for Best Leading Actress and Working Girl as Supporting Actress. Um, also nominated in Lead Actress uh, category were Melanie Griffith for Working Girl and Glenn Close for Dangerous Liaisons and, of course, Jodie Foster, who won. So, um, it's been a long time since I saw The Accused, but that was a tough performance to beat. And considering Meryl already had two Oscars, yeah, I can see why they went that way. Yeah, me too. Um, it was nominated for four uh, Golden Globes. It was nominated for Best Picture Drama, which it lost to Rain Man. Um, it was nominated for Best Director for uh, Fred Skepsi, which was uh, which he lost to Clint Eastwood for Bird, and it was nominated for Best Screenplay from from Robert Caswell and Fred Skepsi, which it lost to a movie called Running on Empty, which is a movie uh, with River Phoenix and Christine Lottie and Judge Hirsch and Martha Plimpton. I don't know that movie, but. Um, and I, I thought it was kind of interesting because Meryl was nominated as well for Best Best Actress in a Drama. This was one of four ties that year. Really? Think of how, yeah, think of how rare it is to get a, a tie at an award show. And this particular year, there were four. So not only were there two, there were three winners in this category. And the Best Actress, Jodie Foster won for The Accused, Sigourney Weaver for Gorillas in the Mist, and Shirley MacLaine for a movie called Madame Shastatska. I don't even know how to say it. I've never heard of that movie. But all three of them were winners. They tied. So Meryl and Christine Lottie for Running on Empty lost. But there were four different ties. Oh, wait, I think more than that. Five, I think. The best original song was tied. Phil Collins and Carly Simon tied. And in the TV side, there was a three-person tie for best actor in a musical or comedy for Michael J. Fox, Judd Hirsch, and Richard Mulligan. There was a tie for best actor in a performance in a miniseries for Michael Caine and Stacey Keach. And there was also a tie in best supporting performance for an actor miniseries or TV movie for John Keelgood and Barry Boswick. There were five ties in one year. That's crazy. So apparently, if you want to watch an absolutely crazy uh, award show, go check out the 1988 Golden Globe Awards because <laughs> apparently it got real crazy. Wow. Awesome. Um, where would this sit on your list, your rankings? Looking at that. For performances, um, I'm going to put it at number three. Wow. It's pretty high up. It's such a good performance. Yeah. 
I almost put it at number one, but I can't, like, I still have the post-it number one, which it's been so long since we've watched it. I need to rewatch it because I'm confused by my ranking, but clearly I put it there for a reason. Julie and Julia is still my most favoritest performance of hers. I just think it's so lovely. So I'm putting the cry in the dark right underneath because I think she's brilliant in it. Okay. Um, Movie-wise... Oh, it's so hard. It's getting harder each time we do this. I'm going to put, I, I rank it a lot higher than IMDb folks do. I'm going to put it at number seven between adaptation. And I don't know why Florence, again, this is another, I don't know why Florence Foster Jenkins is still ranked at number eight, but it is. It's a very scientific process we have here on your own. You know, right? I'm like, maybe I should revisit it. There, I think we each have a couple of those, you know, as we look through, we're kind of, well, really, that's where that one sits. Okay. Yeah. But we felt things in the moment, and that's yeah. where it is. You're kind of making me rethink. I had preset mine uh, in the performances category at number nine. Okay. In between adaptation and Kramer versus Kramer. Now I'm wondering if it should be higher, but for now I'll keep it there. I may adjust it later, but you know, you 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 came out came out hot. That was I did. I came out swinging. Yeah, um, I, for overall film, I have it at number twelve, which again I may adjust, but I have it in between Into the Woods and The Laundromat currently. Yeah, my number 12 is The Deer Hunter and Big Little Lies season two. Yeah, it's it's just so varied, you know? So I, know. What can you do? I think that when this is all said and done, people, we're just going to redo the whole thing. <laughs> do the whole, how you know, 60 episodes again. We're going to start over and see how it goes the second time. <laughs> we got to get there. We got to get there at once first. I know, right? We're making progress. We are. We're doing pretty good, all things considered, actually. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's see. After that, uh, let's see. Uh, sorry, I'm just trying. I'm going to cut this out here. Uh, let's go on to our other segments. Do you have a preference for Six Degrees or movies we wish Meryl was in? Uh, let's do Six Degrees first. Okay. Since we've seen it so many times. Yeah. Um, so our Six Degrees person was uh, Andy Samberg. I was not able to think of a direct movie connection, but found the connection through 30 Rock. Because he was in an episode of 30 Rock. And Alec Baldwin was in that, and it's complicated. I could not, I couldn't find a good movie connection, though. And I am sure you did. I, well, it was hard. I didn't think I was going to be able to find a direct one. But I, I found a few. There are three that I found. She was in, or sorry, he was in a movie called uh, Friends with Benefits with Justin Timberlake and yeah. Mila Kunis. Yeah. Um, Brian Greenberg is in that, and he was in Prime with Meryl, and Woody Harrelson is also in that, and he was in Prairie Home Companion with her. Uh, he was in What's Your Number, that movie with Anna Ferris and uh, Ed Begley Jr. is in that. He was in She-Devil, and... Um, the other one that I found was a movie with Rashida Jones that he did in 2012 called Celeste and Jesse Forever, um, which also uh, featured Chris Pine, who was in Into the Woods. Ah, you found them all. You're you're very good at that game. Well done. This was I had to use IMDb for that one. I I was really trying hard, and like I said, I didn't think for a while I was going to be able to do it. Yeah. Um, I was going to, one of my, another kind of strange, we talked last time or maybe the time before about having kind of um, 
some strange guilty pleasure movies. And I don't think this necessarily qualifies as guilty pleasure, but one of my favorite uh, Adam Sandler movies is the one that he did with Andy Samberg called uh, That's My Boy. I don't know if you've seen that movie. I haven't. It's the two of them and Susan Sarandon's in it and uh, Leighton Meester is in it. It's like if you ask people who like Adam Sandler movies what their favorite is, literally nobody would say this movie. But I just found it really funny. <laughs> nice. Um, I I don't really watch Adam Sandler movies. No? But I do love him in Spanglish. I, I, I will admit, I think he's great. I, yeah. I like him. Yeah. And I like his movies. You know, they're sophomoric, but what can you do? Did you ever see Uncut Gems? I, I've started it. It's on Netflix now. And so um, I've, yeah, I've started I've, it, but I haven't gotten all the way through. We're in the same boat. I've started it, but I haven't gotten all the way through. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know when I finish it. We can weigh in. Yeah, yeah. Um, for movies you wish Meryl was in, did you come up with anything? I did. You know, we were. I was watching that interview you sent me, and you know, assuming that we are not constrained by time, um, they recently announced that Elizabeth Debicki would be playing Princess Diana in the uh, fifth fifth season of The Crown, fifth and last season of right. The Crown. And I was watching that interview that you sent me of Meryl Streep for this film, and I was like, oh, she would have made a great Princess Diana. <laughs> She, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, so I would like to see her in that. How about you? Um, I guess I get sometimes I get sidetracked with these. Um, you know, like we've talked about this before. I know I've mentioned this when we've done this segment other times. I've gone through like other actresses who are contemporaries of hers and like gone through their filmography and been like that one or that one or that one. I did that with like Jodie Foster and a couple other people. Um, and because I was thinking about Susan Sarandon because of that. Uh, Andy Samberg connection I was thinking about her and thinking I wonder if there's any of her performances um, that you know Meryl would have been a strong choice and actually a lot of them but the one and it's probably low-hanging fruit because it's the one that won Susan Sarandon her Oscar but Dead Man Walking you know as that nun I think she would have been really great yeah so good the first thing that popped into my mind when you said Susan Sarandon was um, Move My Mile with- interesting That's yeah yeah, yeah, yeah she, would have had, she would have had to rework with work with Dusty again, but you know, outside of that. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious. I, I wonder if you were going to say Thelma and Louise because you know that was originally intended for her and Goldie Hawn. Thelma and Louise. They would have been great too. I love Thelma and Louise. I love the casting. I mean, we can just go ahead and set as a rule that we had whatever we say in this category. We love who's in it originally and wouldn't change it, but right. it would still be cool. Yeah. Yeah. And even movies like The Client, she would have been great as Richie Love and The Client. You know what I mean? Like she would have done, but Susan Saran is great too. She's had a wonderful career. She's a great actress. Yeah. I would love to see Meryl in any Grisham adaptation. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Actually, as long as we're saying it, although, again, I think we've talked about it on this podcast, but I think Susan Sarandon uh, has maybe been one of the more vocal. Meryl's taking all the good parts uh, people, but it would be fun to see the two of them together in something, actually. Definitely. That um, that miniseries that she and Jessica Lang did, Feud, 
the Betty Davis and Joan Crawford thing, you know, something, something like that, where they're kind of playing um, against each other in that capacity. Again, I don't know how much of it is performative, but if you go back and, and watch the, the year that, uh, Susan Sarandon won for her her Oscar for uh, Dead Man Walking. Meryl was up for that year for uh, Bridges of Madison County, and she just has this gleeful response when when Susan Sarandon like she just seems so happy that Susan Sarandon won. Um, it doesn't seem fake to me. It seems really genuine, you know. But uh, maybe we can get our our friend Erin Carlson to talk about this because I don't know if she. Um, I think she went into this in her book, but. Uh, she she mentioned an interview when Susan Sarandon kind of like called Meryl out. Um, and I think it was before all of that, where she was saying that stuff about, you know, she's just taking everything. We're, we're getting the scraps and she's getting everything that's good. It's so sad that women have to say that, that there's not enough decent material out there for everyone. I mean, that has changed quite a bit now with prestige television and honestly, Ryan Murphy. <laughs> He's a huge part of that. Um, but that's just so sad. It just shouldn't be the case. There should be more than enough good stuff for everyone. Right. I mean, that's that's maybe the, like, Susan Sarandon, the problem isn't Meryl Streep getting everything. It's just not having enough stuff out there. You know what I mean? Like, you can't, it's not Meryl that's the problem, you know? Yeah. She's, she's knocking it out of the park every single time. You can't begrudge her that. So are you, but yeah. it's not her fault. So, anyway. Um, cool. Well, this was a fun one. I love this movie. I love this movie. I'm excited for plenty. I've never seen it. It's... And in fact, I hadn't even heard of it until we started this. It's really? The... Yeah. I mean, it's one of a handful of movies that I hadn't heard of before we started this. Yeah. And it's yeah. it's got some real strong theater connections, too. It's based, it's based on a play by David Hare. And one of the producers is Joseph Cap. Ah, oh, stop. You're just singing my song. Yeah. <laughs> and it's got this great cast. Tracy Ullman, that's where she and Tracy Ullman became friends. Sam Neill's in it. John Gielgud. Ian McKellen, back before he had white hair. Sting, for freaking sake, Sting is in this movie. It's crazy. I'm so excited. I'm very excited. It's an it's a slightly odd one, I will I will say. I remember that being my reaction was, whoa, what is this? Kind of strange. Oh, hey, we skipped one of my favorite segments. What segment? I, I didn't read a, a negative review. Oh, I think we need to end with that. Yeah, we're gonna end with that this time. So as I'm pulling it up here, because there was only one, uh, and it's really sarcastic and kind of strange. I don't know if this person understood what they were doing. <laughs> Um, but here, as I'm pulling it up, uh, so next time we are going to do plenty. That was a good segue into the fact that is our next movie is plenty. Yeah. We thought we would do these two, you know, back to back, um, that, that these three artists collaborated on. All right. So this is the one star, the only one star review on (laughs) IMDb. Uh, the title is hilarious. I don't think this is hilarious movie this this review was written in 2005 by deconstructionist all right here we go it's a real challenge to make a movie about a baby being devoured by wild canines and the mother being wrongfully accused of murder funny but against all odds this one succeeds meryl streep gives the performance of her life melodramatic overwrought but with that comic genius that keeps you laughing even as a mother struggles with the ultimate horror 
If comedy is about the infants being eaten by dogs and not your cup of tea, you might be uncomfortable watching this. And yes, it is an odd choice of topic for a farce, but really very little of the movie has anything to do with that as it focuses on giving Streep a showcase for her Aussie accent and facial contortions. Throwing in a slam at media bias and sensationalism and disregard for either the truth or ethics gives the movie the chance to make the daring point that those things are bad. I don't know what to make of that. All I know is that person voted for Donald Trump. I know that much. Like, for real? Well, I mean... (laughs) But we're just assuming. (laughs) I'm willing to bet a significant portion of my income this year. How about that? (laughs) I think you're probably right. I also think they clearly, clearly don't like Meryl Streep. Yeah. I mean, it's... They watched the movie in the first place. Right. I mean, that's obviously satire. But at the same time, it... It's coming from a place of, like, you can see where their biases are. They don't like the fact that the media is put on blame. That's why I'm thinking the Trump thing is because it's, like, it's, you know, blaming the media. I that was confirmed somewhere if it was just inferred from the review, but I totally agree with you. (laughs) I mean, it's just, uh, that's such a strange thing to, I mean, I kind of dislike how, like, legitimate reporters are kind of being vilified and uh, you know they have been I mean Meryl that was a big chunk of what Meryl's Golden Globe speech that she took so much flack for was about you know was like the vilification of the media I don't think that's the point here I think there are instances in which it goes too far and I think it's cases like this that it does it's not saying the media is wrong for covering it it's saying that like our perception of things can be a little bit off base. I I guess I'm surprised that anybody would disagree with that. Yeah, no, I'm surprised too. I, I'm not sure. It just, it sounds very loaded with pre-previewing opinions right. <laughs> of the parties involved. Right. Something. Yeah, that that interview that that I sent to you that again, I'll, I'll include a link to so that people can check it out. It is, it's one of those things too that I found interesting was Meryl was speaking openly about like what she's criticized for. You know, she said, this is one of those times where people are upset because yes, it's another accent and, you know, I made myself look a different way, but you know, she said this was the first time that she had portrayed somebody real who was living at the time. She portrayed people in out of Africa and Silkwood where she was able to kind of invent a little bit more of those characters because they were no longer around. Whereas Lindy Chamberlain was somebody who was on set and asked her, you know, opinions on things. And um, it was interesting hearing her talk about, you know, what kind of that public perception and how her response to it kind of changes things. I don't know. I just, she doesn't usually comment on that either. No, no, yeah, she was very revealing in that interview. I think too, if you come at this movie and you uh, and you kind of don't do your groundwork, if you don't look up Lindy and Michael Chamberlain, if you don't take into account like the environment in the '80s, I mean, this movie is quite costing to a modern eye because they did such a great job cr- creating the atmosphere in the '80s fashion and everything else that they kind of, you know that they lived in for real. It, I, I mean, down to her floral dress at Ayers Rock. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's almost an exact replica of the one Lindy wore with, with the athletic socks and the sneakers. And so I can see how you might think it's comical if you don't think <laughs> it's accurate. 
<laughs> right. But that's the thing is so much of it has been confirmed to be accurate that it's like it's when you go after things like this, it's confusing because really it's a, as as she pointed out in that interview and in, in other interviews that um, around the same time that are also on YouTube, they could have very easily been sued if they'd gotten things wrong. You know what I mean? Like they could have gotten in trouble if they'd presented things as factually, uh, you know, inaccurate. Yeah. So. I think they really were doing their homework on this. Um, one of my favorite quotes that she had in that was, um, and this is maybe a good thing to take us out on, was uh, Lindy Chamberlain asked her, how are you finding you know, the press? Because it, she knew that they were hounding her. And um, Meryl said something like, yeah, I can't imagine what you went through. You know, she's something like, you know, we're, we're famous and you're famous too. It's, it's hard. And Lindy said to her, yeah, but you're famous and I'm infamous. And you know, the two different sides of that Meryl Streep got to pack up and go home when she was done making this movie. Lindy, I assume is still out there doing her thing and, um, you know, has had to live with this. And I'm sure there are still people who think she's guilty and it's tough. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a great moment to close our episode on and definitely food for thought for everybody. So, well, thanks, Meryl. That was a fun one to talk about. I'm glad we, I'm glad we got to that one. Me too. Finally. That's one I've been waiting for. So, well, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back with plenty and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Bye everybody. That's all.